Well, good morning, Westbridge Church. My name is Eli. I'm one of the pastors here. I guess we know who has four-wheel drive and likes to drive on ice. Thank you guys for being here. Um, I want to say welcome to those of you in our parent viewing rooms. It's a great option for those of you who have young kids who you want to keep with during the service. also want to say uh, welcome to all of you watching online who don't have four-wheel drive. That's a great choice. Stay stay home, stay safe. Um, Well, this morning, our lead pastor, Jeremiah, is out of town. And so if this was pre-pandemic, we could probably do whatever we wanted to do today. But uh, because we have technology, we're going to start this three-week series that's going to take us up till Christmas. And it's called The Thrill of Hope. And that comes from a line uh, in a famous Christmas carol called, O Holy Night. And there's a line in there that says, The Thrill of Hope, A Weary World Rejoices. Now, there's an interesting story behind the origin of this song that I want to share with you this morning. It almost reads like a bad joke. What does a French priest, a atheist, a one-armed atheist, a, uh, a Jewish composer, an American abolitionist minister, and a Canadian inventor all have in common? They are the reason we have O Holy Night. So I'm going to tell you this story. Starts in 1843, there's a French priest, southern France, and he wants to celebrate the uh, repairs that were made to an organ. So he goes to a famous poet, asks him to write a poem about this. Just so happens that he is an atheist. So he, the atheist comes back with a poem, the priest loves it so much, he says, we've got to put music to this. So then he suggests he goes to this famous composer. This famous composer, who happens to be a Jewish composer, puts music to it, brings it back to the priest. The priest loves it. The church loves it. Spreads through France. And then the church realizes that it was written by a one-armed atheist and a Jewish composer, and they ban it. They say no. And so about 10 years later, this song makes it to America, to an abolitionist minister. He translated, translates it from French to English. And he was so anti-slavery, the line in this that says, The change shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease, really stood out to him. And O Holy Night just spread through America. About 50 years later, on December 24th, 1906, a Canadian inventor who lived in Massachusetts, he made the first AM broadcast to a general audience, and in that broadcast, he played the song, O Holy Night. So the first song to ever go across the airways was O Holy Night. I'm going to encourage you that when talk turns political at Christmas Eve dinner, you bring up this fun fact. It's going to bring some unity to the family. So, (laughs) Well, now you know. Uh, A few weeks ago, Jeremiah came to me, and he asked if I would open this series. And if you know me, you know that this is not my favorite place to be. So I, of course, said, yeah, I'll I'll think about it. What's the... What's the topic? And he looks at me like he does and just says, it's, it's Christmas. I'm like, well, it's a very broad topic. So he goes on, he says, we're going to talk about grace, peace, and joy. Which one do you want? And my initial response was, man, peace, joy, grace didn't make my top three, and there was only three options. So, I mean, for peace, freedom from disturbance and tranquility, for me, that's a beach in Mexico. There are no kids at this beach because we are not in that stage of parenting where these kids bring us peace. Uh, for joy, joy, the feeling of great pleasure and happiness. We got a puppy a couple weeks ago. When he's potty trained, I will have more joy. But grace, true grace, I think Jeremiah knew that's something that I struggle with. 
Grace is defined as undeserved love and favor. And like most of you, I have no problem being on the receiving end of that grace. You can ask my wife. I challenge her on it daily. But for me, it's a challenge to give people true grace. Undeserved love or favor. I have no problem with the deserved grace, deserved favor. That's no problem. Two years ago, uh, a mentor of mine, about two months after my car accident, he gave me this book, and it was called A Grace Disguised. This book is an autobiography uh, that talks about growing through loss and suffering. We've all experienced some kind of loss in our life, whether it's a short-term or chronic illness, whether it's um, a disability, a divorce, some kind of abuse, whether it's emotional or physical or sexual, maybe it's unemployment or mental illness or the loss of a loved one, but we've all experienced some kind of loss. I just want to let you know that this Friday, December 10th at 7 p.m., we are going to um, put on a service that we've never done before, and it's all has to do with dealing with loss of a loved one. There's going to be time for us to grieve, to pray, to sing, to light candles, to honor those who we've lost. So um, we've never done it. We would love for you to come and participate in that. I think a lot of good will come from that. But in this book, the author, he lost his daughter, his wife, and his mom in one car accident. In one car accident, three generations wiped out. And I usually, I usually abandon these, um, these self-improvement books about halfway through because it's always leading to this great, awesome truth. And that awesome truth never comes because it's, it's usually like a simple truth, like be nice to your spouse or be present to your kids. And for me, in hindsight, you know, after 11 years of marriage and nine years as a parent, I can realize that these simple truths are actually pretty hard to consistently do. But I'm flying through this book, and they get to the trial of the drunk driver who caused this accident. And the prosecution can't prove he was driving, and he gets off. And that's, I closed, closed the book, I put it up on the shelf. If any of you know how it finishes, I would like you to meet me in the lobby after, because I haven't been able to bring myself to finish it. I was holding on to the hope that justice would be served, that there would be punishment for this person who caused so much destruction and pain and death for this family. That world makes sense to me, a world where if you do the crime, you do the time. No grace is needed in that world. I was angry for the father and the kids, and I found myself being angry for the situation I was in. Because broken and healing seasons are my least favorite healings, but a lesson that I keep learning over these last two years is God is a God who works in every season. Not just in the mountaintops, but in the valleys as well. So here we are this morning. We're going to talk about Christmas. We're going to talk about the thrill of hope. And we're going to talk about true grace. Now, at first glance, I think the story of Jesus' birth could be perceived as maybe poorly planned. Or maybe even a little random. You know, traveling by donkey with a very pregnant Mary. No room in the inn. Born in a manger, no crib for a bed. And this... This is the time that God chooses to bring Jesus into this world. I can assure you that there's nothing random or poorly planned about the birth of Jesus. See, the Bible is split into Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it contains about 600 laws and about 300 prophecies about the birth of the coming Messiah who will deliver 
his people from oppression. The New Testament tells the story of how a weary world is ready for hope. And this hope came not just for the Jewish people, but for the entire world. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the prophecies and the replacement of the 600 laws with two laws by Jesus. These two laws are love God and love others. There's this page in the Bible that we never spend any time on, and it's this page right between the last book in the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. That page represents about 400 years of time and is called the intertestamental period, or some people know it as the 400 years of silence because no prophets were raised in that time between Malachi and Matthew until an angel finally breaks the silence. And I don't want to bore you with a very detailed uh, timeline of that period, but I do want to give you like a two-minute Cliff Notes version of that, which, are Cliff Notes still a thing? That's the only way I read Anna Karenina in high school. It took me a summer, but I think it's been replaced by the internet. But in that 400 years, uh, the power switched from Babylonians to Medo-Persians to Greeks under Alexander the Great and then to the Romans. The Jewish people went from having religious freedom to rebuilding the temple to then again being oppressed and conquered. About, there's this cool story. About 170 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a priest named Judah Maccabee, and he led a rebellion using guerrilla warfare. He is the reason there's Hanukkah. He had the nickname the Hammer because that was the weapon of choice when he went into battle. He and his brothers were fierce fighters and described by Greek generals as stronger than lions, lighter than eagles, and faster than bears. And if I had a nickel for every time I was described as that, I would not have a nickel. (laughs) But can you imagine what this guy looks like? Probably just like Jake, you know, minus the uh, skinny jeans and jacket, like like muscular, no hammer. (laughs) But the Jewish people were weary after that 400 years. Their hope was running low, their faith even lower. They went from hearing God consistently through poets and songwriters and prophets, even burning bushes, to complete and total silence. Today we don't like 40 seconds of silence, let alone 40 minutes, 40 hours, 40 years. We can't even comprehend 400 years. But in these silent years, God was moving. He was working. The Romans built 250,000 miles of road. 50,000 of them were paved and could still be walked on to this day. These roads aided in the spread of the gospel. At that time, everyone understood Greek, which was the common language, and the, uh, what the language of the New Testament was written in. There was freedom to travel because of the peace the Romans brought, and that allowed the world to communicate safely and freely. So in God's silence, he wasn't AWOL, he wasn't missing. He was setting the stage for the birth of Jesus. And God knew that the Jewish people were weary and desperate for a Messiah. When all hope was lost, when the world was at its darkest, when God had everyone and everything in its place, that's when God broke his silence at the exact right time. The Apostle Paul said exactly this in Galatians 4. He said, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. The first person that God spoke to in 400 years 
was an elderly priest named Zechariah. Here's the story. Starts in Luke 1. Zechariah and Elizabeth had God's approval. They followed all the Lord's commands and regulations perfectly. Yet, they never had any children because Elizabeth couldn't become pregnant. They both were too old to have children. Zechariah was in his 90s at the time, and his prayer was that he still would have a son. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, and Zechariah, uh, Zechariah was troubled and overcome with fear. Do you know what the most commanded thing in Scripture is? 366 times it says, do not be afraid. Fear is misplaced trust, and the opposite of fear is faith. Fear paralyzes, but faith brings action. The story continues. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will have a son, and you will name him John. He will be your pride and joy. Many people will be glad that he was born. These verses go on to say that Zechariah's son, who became known as John the Baptist, was a great man. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. That It said that he would change people's hearts and prepare people for the coming of Jesus. For years he prayed for a child, and after 400 years of silence, an angel shows up and tells Zechariah that his prayers are heard and answered. But listen to what Zechariah does, and I think, I think if we're honest, I think we all do this. The angel, the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. God sent me to tell you this good news. Because you didn't believe what I said, you will be unable to talk until the day this happens. Everything comes true at the right time. We learn that God's timing is perfect. Later, his wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant and didn't go out in public for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me now. He has removed my public disgrace. The words, my public disgrace, stood out to me in that verse. I think that's the thing that makes us see ourselves as broken to others. Again, it could be that short-term or chronic illness, that disability or divorce, that emotional or physical or sexual abuse, unemployment, that illness, the loss of someone you love. But whatever we think makes us broken, God's grace makes us whole. It reminded me of about six weeks after my accident, uh, my wife and I went to the doctor for a follow-up exam. They took x-rays and cleared me to walk to our surprise. It still looked like you could put a finger in the holes in my legs. So we did what we thought we should do, and we went to Target. And uh, I'm getting out of the van, and Ashley, my wife, hands me my crutches. And I said, I, I don't need those. You heard the doctor. She said, I can walk. So she puts the crutches back in the van, and... Uh, and they say the worst pain you can have is giving birth. So you ladies in the room, like you win. Good job. Uh, the second worst pain is breaking your femur. And I'm going to add taking a step on a broken femur to that. So I go to take a step. And the pain that I felt was, it was excruciating. But, and yes, the van was a foot behind me. But I had come too far to go back. And... <laughs> So Ashley becomes my crutch, and I'm walking, I'm just draped on her. And it's about a 100-foot walk from handicap parking to the target entrance. And we're about 85 feet in, and people are coming out of target, and they're like, sir, 
you need a doctor? I'm like, no, we just came from one. They said, this is good. Uh, and I hear a car pull up in Handicap Park, and I look back, and this 90-year-old guy gets out, and he is not moving very well. And as someone who wasn't moving very well, I could, I could respect that. And he opens up the back door, and he grabs his walker, and then we catch eyes, and I have this thought, I'm like, this, this dude's about to race me. And he's got, he's got the tennis balls on the bottom of the walker, and he takes off. And I'm like, I'm not going to lose this race. i got an 85-foot head start here. And he's moving quickly, and I can't hear him because the tennis balls are so quiet. He's stealthy. And I'm a couple feet from the door, and he passes me. He passes me. And not only does he pass me, but he slaps me on the back. And he says, and I'll never forget it, but he goes, don't worry, son. It'll get better. And I held on to those words because I thought, man, a word from somebody who's gone through what I'm going through was so encouraging at that moment. And that brought me hope at that time. Brought me some humility as well. I think I beat him now. I don't need the head start. But I want to get back to the story. The second person that Mary, uh, that God spoke to was Mary. The story goes in Luke 1, it says this. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think uh, what the angel could mean. And he said, don't be afraid, Mary. Are you guys seeing the recurring theme here? The angel told her, for you have found favor in God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. Mary, like Zechariah, questioned the angel Gabriel. You might assume that Mary is about to go mute for the rest of her pregnancy because God is fair and just. They both questioned, so they should both have the same consequences, right? One of the guys on our staff who I said I would protect his identity, but he just had a kid, uh, he said that keeping a pregnant woman quiet for any amount of time would be the biggest miracle in the Bible. And I said, Chandler, oh, I, I said... I don't, think, I don't think we can say that. <laughs> that story may or may not be true, but Jeremiah said he was an Abercrombie model last week, so I get, I get one. <laughs> the story continues. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to think that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of, the God, of God will never fail. I find it interesting that even Gabriel points out to Mary Elizabeth's public disgrace. And she used the term public disgrace, but God's grace can turn what we think is a disgrace into something that points people to him in the exact right time. But here's the difference between Zechariah and Mary's response. Zechariah doubted and said, give me proof. But Mary said this, 
I am the Lord's servant. May everything that you've said about me come true. God is faithful and he keeps his promises. The third person that God spoke to was Joseph. His story is in Matthew 1. It says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was was faithful to the law, and yet he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. Again, public disgrace is mentioned. It's that thing that makes us see ourselves as broken to other people. Joseph didn't want that for Mary, so he thought about divorcing her quietly. The verse continues, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, guess what the angel said? Oh, you guys could have answered that. Next service will. It'll be fine. Angel says, do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Now, I doubt that Joseph had ever thought in his wildest dreams he would play such a big role in history. He was probably content with living in a small town, being a carpenter, and raising a family. But Joseph learned, and he knew, and he trusted that God's plans are greater than ours. The stories of Zechariah, Mary, and Joseph are a reminder to us that God is always working for our good. The world was weary and hopeless, and if we're honest, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. But that's when God shows up at the exact right time. The Apostle Paul wrote in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what he did then, and that's what he does now. He never changes. His love is steadfast. When we find ourselves in seasons of waiting, it's good to remember that even when we think God is silent, he is hard at work. He is weaving together plans and purposes that exceed even our greatest expectations. Once everything and everyone was in place, once all 300 prophecies were fulfilled, it's then that Jesus was born. And not to a royal palace, but in a humble manger to an obedient Joseph and Mary. And that was the exact right time. The Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, someone to set them free from their oppressors. Someone to overthrow the Roman government. My guess is they were looking for someone like Judah Maccabee. They were looking for the hammer. But instead they got a baby who grew up to be a man. Who changed the world not through violence or power, but through love and grace and truth. Jesus never actually taught on grace, which I found very interesting. Yet when we think of Jesus, grace is one of the main characteristics that we think of. And that's because in John 1.14, it says this. It says, The word became flesh and lived among us. We gazed upon his glory, the glory like that of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth work together, but an emphasis on grace alone can dissipate into a shallow and sentimental foundation where truth is just discarded. 
However, a focus only on truth can devolve into a cold, hardened belief. It might make churches ban a beautiful, theologically sound Christmas carol because they didn't like that it was written by a one-armed atheist and a Jewish composer. Jesus' character is the perfect balance of grace and truth. And the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are full of stories where every encounter that Jesus had with people, he was full of grace and truth. Grace says you're forgiven, but truth says you're accountable. Grace says it's going to be okay, but truth says you're going to have to work on it. Grace says I love you no matter what, but truth says you're broken. Grace says come as you are, but truth says just don't stay there. As a church, we want to imitate how Jesus lived. We don't want to be a church that's all truth and no grace. Truth churches are so focused on truth that they unintentionally throw grace right out the window. In a righteous effort to enforce truth and protect truth, they set up legalistic barriers to the very God that we're trying to help people connect with. Some of you have been part of those churches. Those churches always result in legalism. We also don't want to be a grace-only church, so focused on grace that we unintentionally throw truth right out the window. In a righteous effort to make sure everyone feels comfortable and no one ever feels guilty or offended, we set up barriers to growth because it never confronts anyone with truth. Some of you have been part of those types of church, and they always result in immaturity. But God doesn't want sin to ruin your life, so that's why he's constantly telling us, here's what's true. Here's how you got to live. Here's how you got to treat people. Here's how you got to handle your life. Here's why you've got to forgive. Here's what you've got to do with your resources. Because God loves us, and he's constantly leading us towards truth. We need to embrace truth in order to grow. But the reason we have to embrace grace is because we've already failed when it comes to truth, and grace is our only way back. Grace is the only way that we can connect with our Heavenly Father and be adopted into his family. And if Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth, and the church is to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we then need to get comfortable with all the mess and the unfairness and the inconsistencies, all the things that go along with the tension between grace and truth. I have this favorite t-shirt. I got it uh, on Memorial Day a couple years ago. The gym I go to, uh, it's a CrossFit gym. I'm not the guy that only talks about CrossFit. But it was a workout called the Murph, and it's on, uh, based on the life of Lieutenant Michael Murphy. If you know uh, his story, if you've seen the movie Lone Survivor, he was one of the heroes who lost his life in Afghanistan. And this, he was a, he was a physical monster because this was his favorite workout to do. He did a one-mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, followed by another uh, one-mile run. And he did that while wearing a 20-pound vest. Now, six months before my accident, I completed that workout not with the 20-pound vest because I, I have a built-in 20-pound vest. I'm working on it. But I got this shirt, and it was my favorite shirt. It was something that I was proud of 
because it was a physical achievement, I did. It didn't hurt that it made my arms look big. That was a good side effect to it. But the morning of my car accident, I was wearing this shirt. And as the paramedics came on scene, they had to cut this shirt off of me. And I don't want to, first of all, if you're a first responder, I have nothing but love and respect for you. I want to thank you guys. You guys do great. But I am curious on what his strategy was with cutting the shirt off me because I don't see a pattern here. And I, I had already diagnosed that I broke my femur and they left my shorts on, which is fine. I'm glad I wasn't laying naked on 19, but they cut the shirt off me. And as I get to the hospital, I'm starting to realize the severity of the things that have happened. And the thing that had me most distraught wasn't the concussion or the collapsed lung, the cracked ribs, the broken femur. It was that my favorite shirt was handed to me in pieces. That shows you how hard I hit my, how hard I hit my head. And a buddy of mine was in the hospital with me, and he had, goes to the gym as well. And so he calls the gym, and he's like, do we got any more of these Murph shirts? Because he won't stop talking about it. And they're like, we are sold out. We're sorry. And my mom's sitting in the corner. And so she starts sewing this thing back together, maybe to get me to stop talking about it. But she sews this back together. And this shirt hung in my hung in my closet for two years. And at first, it was a reminder of just how fragile and precious life can be. It became, it became a, uh, a reason for me to be thankful that I was still alive. But as time went on, as days turned to weeks, as weeks turned to months, and I still wasn't healing, it became a reminder for me of, like, of my public disgrace, of my brokenness. In the hospital, I said some crazy things, and I blame it on the drugs they had me on, but one of the craziest things was, if I get better from this, I'm going to run a marathon. Nobody, nobody rebuked me. Nobody rebuked me. Uh, that was drugs. The other thing I said, though, was, I think when I, I'll know when I'm back from this, when I can do the Murph again. And so... The Murph has been my standard for healing. So even though in this last two years I've done things I've, I hadn't done pre-injury, uh, the Fathers for Fathers bike ride, the 100-mile bike ride, was probably one of the highlights of my last two years. And it was something physically I had never done before the accident. But I still saw myself as broken. I think there's been a lot of times where God has brought people at the exact right time over the last two years to speak truth to me. There were, there were a lot of low moments. It's weird, because I know you, you, you're thankful you're alive. You're thankful you still have everything. But when what you're asking for doesn't get there in your time frame, it's easy to lose sight of hope. So I understand, I understand the weary world. And I, get, I also get that of all the things we listed, a physical injury is probably one of the easier things compared to loss of a loved one. I understand that. But I think there's people here this morning that, like me, have let your brokenness, let your public disgrace define who you are. 
We think that brokenness makes us unworthy. But man, I think our Heavenly Father, he looks at us and he says, that's not how I see you. I don't see you as that illness or that divorce or that disability. I don't see that. I don't see you as the abuse that happened to you. You're not defined by that unemployment or mental illness or the loss of the loved one. I believe God thinks that's, that's part of our story, but it's not all of our story. And I think the way God sees us, he sees us as whole. He doesn't see us as a scarred, a scarred t-shirt. He doesn't see us that way. Through his grace, he looks at us and he says, I've made you whole. This is how I see you. And I think he's saying to us, even when you don't feel it, I'm there. I'm weaving roads. I'm creating paths and purposes. And you just need to trust me and trust my promises. I see you as whole. And I believe for people here in this room today that our stories are just beginning. God's plans will come true just like they did for Zachariah, for Mary, for Joseph, in the exact right time. And that's because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. God sees our brokenness. And through his grace, he makes us whole again. It doesn't mean that the pain instantly goes away. It doesn't mean that there's not scars underneath. But the pain gets better. The scars heal. God can take our brokenness and he can use it to point people towards him. He can use it to help other people heal. But we need to have the courage to share our story, to share our brokenness with others. And man, if you need God's grace as much as I have in the last few years, or the last 41 years, man, you can have it this morning. The story of the Bible, cover to cover, it's this. God is building a family, and he wants you in it. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you to do that today. You can agree with this invitation by following in this simple prayer. Father, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for the times I've walked away from you. I admit that I'm broken and that I need you. I want you to make me whole. I want to say yes to your invitation. Adopt me into your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Help me to trust and follow you. Father, for those of us who maybe struggle with grace, help us to find the courage to give true grace, the kind of grace that you give us, to those of us who we need to extend that to. Give us the strength and courage to do that. We ask you for this. We bless you in your name. Amen.